0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 4. It's marked in your bulletins that we'll be reading through verse 15, but we're going to read through verse 12, editorial privileges of the pastor. Romans 4, 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. That was way too mute. I gave you a week off. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess that it is light and it is truth. And by your spirit, we can perceive and know your truth. And so, God, we ask this morning that you will send out your light and your truth, that you will guide us in the ways that you have revealed, and that you will speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. As a young church planner moving to Arlington, Virginia, I had various contacts asking whether I would follow up with their friends, their college graduating class, a friend they had there, a son or a daughter who happened to live in the area of Arlington, Virginia. Over the first weeks and months, I pretty ardently went about trying to make these connections having lunches and conversations with various people who I didn't know. Very little came of that work. And so after nine months of tilling other relational fields, the church was ready to hold its first worship services, and I received one more of these requests, whether I would have a lunch with a friend. Charlie was his name. I was given his number and asked to reach out to him. I had very little expectations after my experience of these lunches, but we set it up and I went. Surprisingly, at the end of the conversation, Charlie told me that he was going to be there on the first worship service that was about two weeks away. He was a 30-year-old single guy. He taught physics at the Fairfax County Schools. He was bright and successful, had actually been the National Teacher of the Year. He had a Roman Catholic background. And he was somewhat trying to figure out where Christianity was going to fit into his life. He didn't quite know. We became close friends over the weeks and the months that were to lie ahead. He continued to come to church every week, but he refused to take communion. He refused to join because he couldn't yet be a protestant, he would tell me. (laughs) Several months into our relationship, we had gone sailing one day, and we were discussing the the topic of how a person becomes right with God. And this this is what he told me. He said, well, Chuck, here's how it works. If you break your neighbor's window, you have to go to your neighbor and apologize. But then in order for your neighbor to know that you're really serious, and for your neighbor to forgive you, you have to go and fix the window. He said, that's how it works in life. And that's how I figure it also works with God. And here it was. After months of discussion, after studying the Bible together, here was the critical stumbling block. The very thing that was keeping my friend Charlie back from a true and real appreciation of the gospel. See, what the stumbling block was, is it was very difficult for him to appreciate that you could be friendly towards God. You could even be motivated to do good things for God and for other people. And yet, it can be these very things, these good things that you're doing, that make you hostile and offensive to God. But what exactly is that hostility? What is the hostility that our good works can present? And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans 4, because what we find here is Paul addressing Jewish contemporaries who wanted to put a claim on God. That is, that they wanted to say that, I am righteous, and therefore, God must justify me or vindicate me. And so some may ask, well, why is that so offensive? To be a good person, to do good things, to follow the Ten Commandments, to listen to the Decalogue, to do what God wants. Why would that be so offensive to God? If you remember back to Romans 1, we entered there into Paul's discussion about human rebellion and what it looked like for human beings to reject God. That we suppress His truth, that we fail to give thanks to Him, and rather than hearts of gratitude, we reject His way and we go our own way. And we've discussed over these weeks that that eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil was not just a horticultural mistake, that what that was was the primal human sin in which human beings announced that they wanted to be the judge of good and evil. This is what was happening in that exchange, that they wanted to be the judge of right and wrong, the judge of truth and error. They no longer wanted their lives to be under the claim of God, to be submissive to Him. It was the quest for independence and autonomy. We're told then that our foolish minds were darkened, our hearts were hardened, we claim to be wise but we were handed over to foolishness and what is perhaps the most difficult part of that handing over for us is to recognize that this also applies to the religious fear that yes we can read Romans 1 and oftentimes think yes this applies to many people who are irreligious but friends we have to recognize that this also applies to a great number of religious thinkers and religious ways of being. That that desire to be independent and autonomous from God, it plays itself out here in Romans 4. You see, when we want to put a claim on God that by our obedience, by our good works, God then must do something to justify us, This is the autonomous quest. This is the independent quest. It is to put ourselves in position where we don't have to rely on God. And so it's the religious expression of the primal rebellion that we found in Romans 1. And this is why it's so hostile. This is why it's so offensive to God. It is a sinful wisdom. That animates our reconciliation with God our attempt to do so and so it comes as a warning to every one of us it was embedded deep in Israel's life even though they had the truth of God that that was not the way to reconciliation they went another way and so in Romans 4 Paul is working and he is laboring that we come to a right appreciation of how we as sinful and fallen and broken human beings are rightly reconciled to God. And so what he does is he gives us two negative statements because in verse 12, he's going to instruct us positively as to what it means to be reconciled to God. And he says it is by faith walking in the footsteps of your father, Abraham. But if we can think of this as traveling along a path Walking in the footsteps of Abraham, he will give us two negative statements in order to highlight the positive path. And so the negative statements let us know the dangers on the left of the path and on the right of the path, and they guide us into the positive appropriation. And so this morning, we'll consider these two negative statements to point to the positive truth of how we're reconciled to God. First, What we see in verses 1 through 8 is that we're not counted right with God by our obedience. Paul begins with a pointed question, and he lands his decisive blow in verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Among Paul's Jewish contemporaries, it was commonly believed that Abraham was counted right with God subsequent to and because of his obedience. Several different Jewish writings confirm this that Abraham was justified because he received the sign of circumcision and was willing to undergo that ritual and also that he was willing to offer his son, Isaac. Because of those two examples of obedience, God justified Abraham. It's rich in the literature. But what Paul argues back is that if this is true, if Abraham could do good works that would then put an obligation on God, he would indeed have something to boast about. But he turns and says that there is no boasting. There is no boast before God. His boast could only be before people because this is not the way that God says Abraham was counted right. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say, Paul asks. And then he quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He then goes into further detail in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as, as his due. And so yes, if we could work our way to God, if by righteous deeds we could reconcile ourselves to God, that God had to justify us because we were obedient to him, then we would be receiving wages from God, what our due is. But the whole point of the gospel is that it's not a wage that it is a gift Abraham received that gift placing his faith and trust in God's promise and he was counted righteous not because of anything he had done but because of his faith and so Paul's contemporaries and so many of Contemporary, our contemporaries in the world today would believe that righteousness is descriptive of our character and our deeds. But rather what Paul is pressing upon us is that righteousness is a legal declaration, that it has nothing to do with us in our character and who we are, but rather it's a legal declaration from God that is given freely to us because of our faith in his son, Jesus. And so the biblical sequence for Paul couldn't be more clear. That it's faith, then justification, then obedience. And that justification is never dependent or contingent upon that obedience. That our God is not one who does tit for tat, That he's not a heavenly miser who's deciding whether you get to get in day in and day out by what you've done. No, rather what we're told is that God forgives and God pardons the ungodly. That is those who have participated in that unrighteousness and that ungodly rebellion that we found in chapter 1. That independent and autonomous quest, no matter what shape it took in your particular life. We have all eaten that fruit, we have all participated in that way, and it is God who then forgives and justifies the ungodly who have participated, those who have faith in Jesus. To make matters perhaps clearer, Paul then quotes from Psalm 32, and he cites David as the example, the speaker of the psalm. Of course, David, one who followed the ways of the law, and yet we also know was a sinner himself. And we're told that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so we have here two ideas that are presented to us. On one hand, we have the forgiveness of sins, the covering of those by God. And on the other hand, we have this idea of being counted righteous by God. And from the Jewish literature of the period, we know that they often thought in terms of two ledgers. And it's helpful for us to think in this way as well. That in the ledgers, on one side, you have your liabilities. That is what you owe, what you're at fault for. And on the other side of the ledger, you have your assets. And of course, in our sinful state, we have unlimited liabilities, and we have zero assets. That we cannot put a claim on God because we owe Him something, we've not given Him something, and also we have nothing to offer. And what the gospel is saying is that our liabilities are covered, they're wiped out, they're forgiven, and then we're granted assets, we're granted the righteousness of Jesus That God counts us righteous to be in right standing with him through faith in Jesus. And so it's not by our obedience. It's not by our works. We're not giving anything according to what is due to us. It's a gift from God as we look to Jesus in faith. But this is the danger on the left side of the path as we walk in the footsteps of Abraham is that being counted right with God is not by obedience. But second, verses 9 through 12, we see the other danger on the other side of the path, of the other side of the path, that we're not counted right with God by sacraments. If you follow in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Paul is here engaging in a deep textual argument with his Jewish contemporaries. And it's helpful to refer back to the book of Genesis, once again to the order of the chapters there. Because in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, he comes to him unilaterally and says that he's going to bless him, he's going to give him land and descendants and a heritage, and that those descendants are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Then in chapter 15, God once again comes to Abraham. But Abraham has a concern. He understood the promise from God that he was going to have descendants who would be a blessing to the nations of the earth, but he had no heir. He had no child, and he was also old. And how, how was God going to work all this out? And so God reiterated the promise to him. And he takes Abraham outside underneath the skies. And he says, can you count the stars? Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and as many as the sands of the seashore, that God was going to make good on his promise. And then we have verse 6 in chapter 15, and Abraham believed God. He trusted that God was going to make good on that promise. And then we hear the iconic words, and his faith was counted or accredited to him as righteousness. Then in chapter 17, after a particular failure on Abraham's part in chapter 16, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. And Paul tells us here that it was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And so it was subsequent to Abraham's justification Yet many of his contemporaries were wanting to say, "Because I'm circumcised, I am then righteous, that this sign puts a claim on my life and a claim on God that I belong to him." And rather Paul makes it clear, no, we're justified by faith. And the sacramental sign of circumcision in the Old Testament that translates into baptism in the New Testament, that that is a seal. It exhibits the promise of God, but it does not confer the gift that it points to. That, friends, the only thing that confers the gift that the sacrament of baptism witnesses to is the working of faith through the Spirit. But yet, we find this in many different expressions of nominal Christianity. You can find it in Roman Catholicism and Protestantism alike that because we've participated in these rituals important rituals that we uphold and celebrate but yet we overestimate their importance and we assign something to them we have put a weight upon them that they were never designed to carry that they are signs and seals that exhibit the promise and yet the only way the promise is conferred is by the working of faith in our hearts. And so he points out to us once again a danger, a particular danger for the religious person, for the one who is surrounded by the revelation of God and the gifts of God, the good gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are ordinances we're to use and we're to delight in. And that we're to come in all of our weakness like Abraham because we too struggle in faith. And that these sacraments are to confirm and strengthen that faith. They're to nurture it, to remind us of the promise, to point us and direct us in faith. That it is a sign and a seal and an instrument of God. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't give us justification. That what grants us justification is faith in Jesus. And so, friends, in the footsteps of faith, as we follow after Father Abraham, the man of faith, the one who trusted God, we have to heed those two negative statements that our right standing with God is not had by our obedience. And our right standing with God is not had simply because we have participated in his sacraments. But our right standing with God is only and solely determined by faith in Jesus. That this puts no claim on God. That it receives the gift that God freely gives us. As we look not to the quality of our faith, but to the object of that faith. And the object of that faith is none other than our Lord Jesus, the righteous one, who was without sin, who was a pure offering to God. And then because he was pure and righteous, death could not hold him and he was raised from the dead. And so all who place their faith in him share in his righteous status. That is God's gift. And faith passively receives it. And so, friends, this question... How are we right with God? There's no more important question in the world to ask and to answer. And the Apostle Paul presses you today to ask and to answer it. Is your faith and your confidence in Jesus? Or is your faith and your confidence lodged in something else? Is it lodged in your personal goodness? Is it lodged in your church membership? Is it lodged in your denominational affiliation? Is it lodged in your theological knowledge? Is it lodged in the fact that you participated in the sacraments that God has assigned to the church? Or is it lodged in your trust and your belief in Jesus? That he, the righteous one, can handle the two ledgers for you. That he can cancel out and cover your liabilities And he can grant you infinite assets of righteousness, that by him, you're counted right with God. Make sure you have an answer to that question. Let's pray. Father, we confess all the ways that we strike out an independence and autonomy against you. And we recognize that it runs deep within us, even into our religious lives, where we would seek to put a claim on you by our works and by what we do. Forgive us for that and help us to freely receive the gift that you grant in Jesus and that by faith we would receive and delight and be free from the weight of our sins. And so draw us to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.